wondered about this weird thing of tithing. Dion is your man. He's chomping at the bit to tell you about his revelation in the area of tithing. So tag you're at Dion. <laughs> um, it's so great to be with you today. And this is the sixth and final um, a week of our series, Giants Must Fall. And I think, for me personally, it's just been an absolutely incredible series. And I think it is, um, I hope that as much for me as it has been for you, that it has helped us to identify our giants, to tackle them. I think for some of us, we, we have gone on a, on a bit of a, a, a few weeks of, of really trying to kill and slay this giant. For some of us, we've only maybe just identified this giant. For some of us, we may have thought on week one that we slayed the giant, but it's just reared back up again this week. Um, but wherever you're at, um, we just want to leave you today with uh, what do we do when we face these giants? Because basically, we've been looking at this incredible epic journey of the Israelites leaving Egypt and moving towards the promised land. And we know that in that move, there are giants that would want to stop us from getting to that inheritance and fullness of what it is that God called us for, so, and called us to. So today is called No Turning Back. And I really pray that today would give you all two really clear and strong handles to know what to do when you come up against these giants. So um, in week one, uh, we, we just had uh, Bones, and he just set us up, and he just gave us such a vision for what it could look like. And um, we've just celebrated this, this epic tale of, of really understanding that, that the leaving Egypt is just representative of our salvation. It, we, get, we get saved out of slavery. We get saved out of so much. But the part of walking into promised land is an inheritance, and that thing is not guaranteed. We have so much to do with that. And then we talked about how um, we just have to learn how to completely trust God, um, to trust for his provision, to trust that he knows what we need, and um, to hear him and discern and, and move with his spirit. And then we, we looked at the fact that we need a tribe, and not only do we need a tribe, but there's a tribe that needs us. We spoke about how we're all these, these incredible bits that just fit together um, to be exactly what a community needs. And so it's not just, I need a tribe, it's I have something that a tribe needs. And then um, last week we had Gary up here who spoke about um, the manna, that revelation that God promises us each and every day, fresh revelation each and every day. And um, yeah, so today is no going back, no turning back. And um, quite honestly, to get up here today and give this message is for myself, slaying a massive giant. I'm not feeling very well. I might keel over at any point. Please forgive me if I do. We've got a video on backup. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, for a number of reasons, this, this has been one of these things where I've really had to go, okay, God, I'm, I'm really taking you at, at your word on this, and I'm standing up, and I'm slaying a giant in, in this message today. And I'll share a bit more of that as we go. Um, so... What happens when we come up against this giant or this challenge or this insecurity or this thing that is just really making it difficult to move forward into freedom is that we, as humans, we're just designed to either look backwards or to look forwards. It's just what we do. We're designed that way. We look into the past or we look into the future. So Shell and I have been on this journey of having been called up here to the North Coast, and um, this journey for us has been a giant. Um, on many, many occasions we've felt insecure, unsure, we have faced struggles, and on some days the challenges have just loomed a little bit too big for us. And I'm not saying this in any way to create insecurity or concern, I'm just really being vulnerable and explaining what a giant looks like in my life. 
and um, how Shell and I have reached this ultimate decision of absolutely no turning back. We have, uh, so we, we come up with this challenge and then we have these cherished memories and this is something that we all do. And for Shell and I, it looks like this, oh, life in Durban. <laughs> it was so nice back there, okay? Um, and uh, so, so we look back and we, we remember those things. Now, some of you might have seen this play out at a funeral. Um, I've heard of people who've gone to a funeral and when they're doing the eulogies, they actually find themselves looking at the cover to make sure they're at the right funeral because this old cantankerous person is being described as a saint and they're kind of like, are we at the right funeral? It looks like the right people, but this doesn't sound like the person that I worked with or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, there, there's a perfect example of where a family is in pain and they're struggling and they, they have to actually take on a lens and remember the good and, and attach themselves to the wonderful memories of the past in order to cope with that initial pain. And I think down the line they'll deal with all the difficulties. But at a memorial, you catch those people in that space where they've just gone, I'm going to remember the best and I'm going to grab hold of all the wonderful. And that's what we do when we come up to something difficult and sore and painful is we put a, a beautiful lens and we crop and we take out all the ugly bits and we look at the past as something beautiful. Something with no problems. So looking back into the past makes you say statements that begin with when we. You all know this, don't you? When we. When we were in Durban, things were certain and stable and easy. When we were in Durban, we didn't spend 50 minutes in the car park at Amshlali. <laughs> Shame, I came across three mums this week and I was on the back end of a four-kilometer journey that had taken 50 minutes and I was like a ranting lunatic. I was like, I'm taking my children back to Durban schools because it was quicker to drive in there and come back than it is to deal with that car park. Um, when we lived in Durban, we would have people just pop over all the time. So we look back and, um, and we, we hear things, we hear people of, of the older generation saying things like this. Looking back, um, everyone used to walk 10 miles to school, but they were still well-mannered and respectful and kind and grateful. And we know that all the music was clean and tasteful and all the politicians were trustworthy and noble and petrol was for free and a chappie only cost a half a ticky or something like that. But there's this looking back and, and the thing is that, yes, there were a lot of great things about the past, but they also had dial-up. You know, they had to wait like 40 minutes for... I say they, I was also there, I'm that old. But remember we had to wait like half an hour just to get a connection to type in for one answer on Google. You know, so there were wonderful things about the past, but there are things that were very hard in the past too. And so then we get the opposite, we get the looking forward. And, um, and this can almost border on the religious, but it's it what allows us to have um, things like wanderlust and insta-envy um, and retail therapy and all those kind of things. We're looking forward and we're going, if only, if only, if only. And when that happens, um, when I travel, I'll find myself. And I'll get some killer content and I'll get a million people following me on Instagram. If I could just get my body to look like that, or if I could just get my husband to look like that, then I could be happy. Not you, babe, you're perfect. Um, and... Um, if I could just be happy for my friends when they fall in love, um, if I could just afford that or earn that or get my business to this point, um, or my wife or husband to behave in a certain way, cool like that one's husband or wife, then I would have no complaints and there would be no threatened life to me. But at the moment, I'm longing to get there and I'm grasping hold of this thing in the future and, and I can't really fathom the fact that maybe I could get there and it actually doesn't hold what I thought it would. So really what we're talking about here is this thing called fantasy. It's um, what I do, I, I create a world and it's based on my appetite. So it's looking at the past with the lens of an appetite and looking at the future with the lens of an appetite. 
memory and imagination through something that we are craving and something that we want. And so what we do is we exactly, we crop out the bits that don't look good and we just put a beautiful filter, beautiful lens and make it look amazing. So for us, what this would look like is looking back at Durban, um, we would think of all the wonderful unannounced pop-ins, all these people streaming into our house, but we would forget how sometimes that was flipping inconvenient and annoying. Okay, but, but you know, when you're in this place at Saw, you, you can only remember the good, but sometimes it sucked. We're like, leave us alone. Um, and um, there were some times when we spent more than 15 minutes in the car. But this is what we do. We, um, we, we look back and we look forward and we only imagine that those two places hold what is good and what we need in that moment when we are struggling. So the appetite, I think, for Shell and I would be that for 38 years, I lived in Durban North. How utterly boring, but that's the truth. I lived in Durban North for 38 years, and I was established and rooted, and I couldn't even go out to my post box without waving at 50 people that I knew. It was just like I went to take my kids to preschool, and I sat next to all of the moms and dads that I sat with at Chelsea. Like, isn't that madness? But so rooted, so established, it was such an ease and a comfort with this life that we had in Durban North. So we think of that, and then we go, oh, well, maybe, maybe having a futuristic lens is actually the better then, because I can see how dangerous that could be. And so we set ourselves to assigning these beautiful goals, and we're going to create this kind of life. And whilst that's a good thing, there's nothing wrong with it. There's it's a good thing to have goals. If it's through this lens of appetite, then what we can do is we can actually give ourselves wrong dreams and wrong goals, and things that actually, when we get there, we realize they didn't satisfy they didn't live up to what we thought they would. So you go on that big expensive travel that you've saved for six years for, and your whole hope has been, when I do that, everything will be cool. And what you discover is that there's bed bugs and loneliness. Or you find that wonderful spouse, and guess what? They're not perfect. And what happens is that the more desperate we are for something, the more likely we are to choose poorly, because we don't actually believe that if we hold out and wait for the very best that God has, that we will actually get it. We think we have to grab hold of all those things because our appetite, our appetite is dictating what we need. So we have this danger of these futuristic fantasies and we have this danger of the nostalgia, which could get us to a place of kind of going, okay, let's just live in the present. Isn't that what we should do? The key to, to joy and happiness and satisfaction is to live in the present. And whilst that is good to a degree, why would this good and loving God then give us memories and imagination? He placed that in our mind, and he wants to tell us how to use it. He wants to teach us how to use it so that in those moments when we're ready to just throw in the towel and turn back to Egypt or throw ourselves in this unrealistic future, that we know how to apply our memory and our imagination in a way that will take us forward and allow us to slay that giant. So what is it, for each of you, just take a moment to think about it, what is your appetite? What is that thing that you hunger for? Um, that thing that you focus on, that your decisions are based on, that you dream about, you pray about, it takes all your brain space, your conversations. What is that thing? Is it wealth? Is it appearance? Success? All of those things are good, but they can also not be good for us. So I'm going to pick up this from Paul in um, 1 Corinthians verse 10, and it says this. 
I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. So this is in the New Testament. He's looking back and he's saying, look back at what happened. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that was the rock of Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. So I've just realized that I've left a chunk out. Would you excuse me? I'm going back just a ticky here. Um, ticky, that's that word from the old days, when we only spent a ticky on a chappy. Um, so what happens when we throw everything into this fantasy and we create a world based on our appetites? is that we elevate something above God. And the theological term for that is an idol. It's idolatry. And so what we're doing is we're going, this thing, which can be a very good thing, is bigger and better and holds more promise than God. And so that is what Paul is warning against. He's saying, there there could be something that, that is such a good thing, but because you've placed it as bigger and more powerful than God, it will hurt you. It is not the thing. It is the very thing that will keep you from the promised land. So let me just read that again, that last bit. It says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. So what had happened? How could it be that these Israelites find them in a place where after all these insane miracles and getting to the other side of the Red Sea on dry ground, that they could find themselves in a place of going, we would rather go back to Egypt and slavery. What could it be? So in Numbers 11, it says this, Meanwhile, the rabble among them had a strong craving for other food. And again, the Israelites wept and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the fish we ate um, freely in Egypt, along with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing we see but this manna. And so here we get the sense of the appetite again. They have an appetite for something else. And this appetite for something else is actually going to allow them to put that above God and his plans and purposes and his desire for them to enter the promised land. So now I'm going to a big chunk from Numbers 14, and I'm actually just going to take snippets because it's it's long and we'll, we'll be here until Easter. So Numbers 14, it says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Okay. They moaned and groaned and carried on, and eventually they get to a point where they say, Let's choose us a new leader and go back to Egypt. Can you actually imagine putting this appetite above what God is doing with them and above what they've seen him do and being willing to go back into slavery. Then it says, Moses and Aaron fell down, face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. And, um, and it says, no, actually the land is wonderful. It's not nearly as bad as you think. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land. They are actually only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. And then it says, but the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. I'm sorry, Jess, I'm flipping through here. I hope you're keeping up. Um, They began talking about how to stone Joshua and Caleb. Then the glories of the presence uh, of the Lord appeared to Israelites. And um, and, um, then... 
God says, I'm going to disown them, and I'm going to um, destroy them with a plague. Something fascinating happens here. Um, this is actually known as a time in Scripture where God repented. Can you believe that? Because repentance actually means changing one's mind. And so God's like, I'm just going to smite a lot of them. They're really annoying, and I'll turn you guys into something, but the rest of them, no. They, um, they are... I'm not going to let them. I'm going to destroy them all with a plague, he says. But Moses objected and said, what will Egyptians think when they hear about that God? He's saying basically, the the Egyptians saw your power. They saw what you did. They saw the great lengths you went to, the miracles you performed, all the plagues to get these guys out of here. What will they say about your power if you can't even get them into the promised land? They'll say this, the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he swore to give them. So he killed them in the wilderness. Please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have proclaimed. And here, Moses is quite cheekily reminding God of who he is and saying, but this is who you are, and this is who you said you are. For you said, the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving of every type of sin and rebellion. So he's saying, God, please, be who you said you were. Repent, don't do this thing. In keeping with your magnificent unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people, just as you've forgiven them um, since they've left Egypt. Then the Lord said, Okay, I will pardon them as you have requested. But surely as I live, and as surely as the earth is full of the Lord's glory, not one of these people will enter the promised land. So God said, they will remain saved. I will not kill them, but they won't get the inheritance. Because they've put these other appetites, these appetites that are not God, as bigger than God. They've put them as bigger than the calling and bigger than the inheritance that he had for them. So that is the first idea that the idols will not stop you from being saved. They very rarely will stop you from being saved, but they will always stop you from walking into your inheritance. So God saved them, took them out, and then he said, but there's a new way. And what happens? They come against difficulties. And in those places of difficulties, they get to that place where they just go, I cannot continue. I can't move forward. I I can't take a next step. I want to go back to what was familiar and what was easy. So that's the second big idea, that there will come a time with all of us when we're facing that giant, when it will be a struggle to persevere. And this is normal, and it doesn't in any way invalidate anything that God has already done. In fact, it doesn't invalidate everything that he has done. All of the heroes of faith have faced this moment. And it is key because you have to see that it is coming. And at the point when it comes, you have to know how to engage your memory and your imagination in the right ways. Because when that moment comes, the fantasies will rise up and your appetite will try and dictate to you and keep you from going in the right direction. It's based on that faulty lens and something which is not entirely true. Even if it's a good thing, it's not the best thing. So you're going to need to learn how to starve out some stuff. And what is the stuff? What is the idol? What is the thing, the giant, that is going to do this for you? Is it seeing yourself as a victim who's entitled to grumble and expect a rescue? Is it comfort? Is it novelty? Is it family? If we decide our families are in safer hands in our hands than in God's hands, what are we really teaching them? Is it better for my family to see me putting them or God as the highest thing? Is it reputation for some of us? Some archaeological evidence says that the Israelites were shorter, and so um, 
They really did probably look like grasshoppers compared to the giants. But is reputation the thing that could be stopping you from taking that next step? Is it security? Is it predictability? Is it living under the illusion that you are your own God? To walk with God sounds lovely, but to be warned, you have to be warned that it is incompatible with an overinflated sense of our own importance. Is it the country? Do we think that if we're in another country, that it will all be sorted out? Is that the idol? Is it church? Is it if only this happened or if only that happened? What is the idol? And how do we kill it? How do we slay that giant that's standing in our way? And, you know, we could, we could be, get introspective and work it out. And, yes, we have to know what the giant is. We could starve it. We could do all manner of things. Or we could just wait until God forces us to make a decision. But ultimately, we have to know how to persevere. We have to know how, when that moment comes, we get to push through and persevere. And that's what, this is what you have to do in that moment. You have to take the memory. You have to take the memory and make sure that you're not giving it a lens of your own appetite. And you have to give that memory the bigness and the goodness of God. You have to look into the past and not see the thing that, that made that craving come right, but you have to go, look how big God was. Look how good God was. Because if you make God the hero of the memory, then you can make him the hero of the future. If he's the star of the past, he'll be the star of where you're going. So you have to take a hold of that memory and go, God, you were big and good, and I see your bigness and your goodness in these ways in my past. And with the imagination, we look forward with his promises and with his instructions. We get so comfortable with attaching ourselves and believing and having faith in his promises, like all the beautiful promises he'd given the Israelites about a land overflowing with milk and honey, and, and just goodness in this beautiful land. So we hear those promises for ourselves. We, in a faith community, and people give us a word and we grab hold of it. We get our own revelation from God and we believe those promises and instructions, which is just where we hear his voice and we go, nothing will be bigger. Nothing will stand in the way of in that moment when I get your instruction of being able to put everything else aside and take a step in faith with you, God. This verse speaks to the memory part, Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 to 23. It says, when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and statutes and judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. So when your kid says, how did you fight that battle, dad? Mom, how did you get past that thing? You will say, God was so big and God was so, so great and so good that he brought me out of that. And he showed me his bigness and his goodness in these ways. And that will be the thing that gives him hero status, star status of your memory to give you hope for the future. Psalm 77. Jess, I'm going to flip through a lot of this. Um, we just hear this crowd. He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out for God to hear me. There's this anguish, and he's looking back, and will you actually help me? And then it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? Your God who performs miracles. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. The descendants of Jacob and Joseph... 
The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. Um, the very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Through your, though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the mighty hand, with the, with the hand of Moses and Aaron. So this memory is just the bigness and the goodness of God. Look at what he has done. That is who has got us here, and that is who will take us forward. And then the Israelites had things to remember. We get something incredible to remember in this day, uh, which is communion. And God instructed us to take communion. We're going to take that in a moment. But that reminds us also of what he did at the cross. And it also helps us to look forward with the lens of the victory that he's assured each and every one of us to. For our imagination, listen to this incredible scripture from Philippians 1 verse 6. It says, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So today is about no turning back. For me, Egypt is a place where self-sufficiency lived. It's a place where I felt qualified to do what I was asked to do. It's the place where I had people around me filling in my weaknesses, and um, there was an ease and a synergy, and I wasn't having to step out day by day in fear and in faith. Egypt is a place where it's easy, where we're not being forced to grow and forced to be on our knees asking God to help us. But I know that we don't grow there. I know that had we stayed in Egypt, we wouldn't be the part of body, the body that God needs us to be. And for many of us, there are parts of the body that we need to be. We have absolutely chosen to step into the promised land. There is no turning back for us. And for each of you today, I just want to say that whilst it might sound that I'm saying you need to have a big call, or there needs to be a big vocation or, or something, it's not that at all. Um, that, that is just our story and, and what we've been called to do. But for each and every one of us, there are daily or weekly or whatever it is calls to partner with God's Spirit. And in those moments is where we'll realize that there is a giant stopping us. It could be that you just know that that mom who's acting like she's got it all together is actually crumbling. And you're a little bit scared to ask and you're worried about what she'll think if you're wrong. And it stops you from just going and saying, are you okay, would you like a coffee? Or it could be seeing that tailor at the shop who you just know is in pain and being too scared of what people think to actually just say, can I quickly pray for you? It could be that opportunity you get at work where you see that there's some form of injustice happening and you know that you need to speak out and your heart is pounding 16 to the dozen, but you just don't. There are so many, and, and, and those calls are huge and they're significant and they, they get to change lives and destinies. And as we step into those, we're partnering with the king of the universe to bring about freedom for others, to bring about our own freedom, because we're throwing off things that have held us back. So today, um, we're going to take communion. If you can just please hand it out. When you come to that struggle, and you just want to immerse yourself in the past, 
That's okay. But make sure that in the past you're seeing his bigness and his goodness. And when you want to start thinking about what the future looks like, and you tempted to make it look like something that the world tells you is good, thanks, Steve. Remember that the very best lens to look at the future at. Thank you, darling. <laughs> the very best lens to look at the future at is through the lens of his promises and his instructions. What has he promised you about the future and what does he want to instruct you to do? So this series is really, um, it's just to set us up for the year. It's not like we get to the end of today and we go, oh, okay, tick, done and dusted. This is something that we'll go back to all the time because it's something that is an ongoing reality of the journey of being a follower of Christ. Because Christ is, um, there's just no lid on him. There's no way to stuff him into a box and there's no way to stop our growth and to stop how big and how amazing life can be in him. So won't you just take today as a seal on your heart as something where you're going each and every time, I know that there's something for me in God. I'm going to align my thinking. I'm going to align my heart. I'm going to align my intentions with what He looks like in my past and in my future and what He can allow me to do today.